Well, if you are new, you should know that we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to go up, uh, grab one off the round tables, open it up, because we're going to be looking at more than what was read this morning, and, uh, and that will be helpful for you. As you are finding uh, that passage, though, I want to tell you a story. It was Wednesday, and we were at our staff meeting, and we do what we do every staff meeting. We were going over the service. We go back through our service every week to ask the question, what did we do well that we can build upon, and what did we do not so well that we can grow into? And then we got to my sermon, which we evaluated. Did you know that? My sermon is evaluated every week by the staff, because none of us have arrived, and none of us are above growing. And so we're evaluating my sermon, and we get to one point in the sermon, and I said, I think I lost people at that point. And, uh, and Joyceberg asked the very astute question, how do you know when you've lost people? And I said, well, their eyes start to glaze over, they start fidgeting with their phones, the young mother's eyelids get really heavy and start dropping, and then I said, but I always know I can get them back. I can always get them back with a story. We love a story, don't we? Jesus loved to tell stories. It's a commonly known fact that Jesus told stories all the time. But that's not exactly accurate. Jesus didn't tell stories. Jesus told parables. And a parable is a story with a point and a punch. And often to get the point, you have to feel the punch. Uh, Jesus told parables all the time. In fact, in verse 34 of um, chapter 4 of Mark, it says that Jesus did not speak without a parable. That's his primarily, primary way of communicating in the gospel of Mark. When I was 18, I was sitting in the office of the youth director of the church that I attended. I also happened to be an intern on staff at the time. And I was about to deliver uh, my first talk. And I was going in for his sage wisdom on anything that I can keep in mind. What are the pointers? How should I do this? And he said, remember, kiss. And I thought, um, John, I don't think the middle schoolers have heard of that band. I don't know that Gene Simmons is really going to resonate with the middle schoolers uh, right now. And he goes, no, not the band, the acronym. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Well, I must admit that in my ministry, I have not followed that incredibly well. You know, some pastors are really good at taking complex truth and making it very simple. I'm very good at doing the opposite. But I do take some consolation in the fact that Jesus spoke in parables. And parables were not meant to take complex truths and make them simple. In fact... Sometimes they did the opposite. You see, they didn't just reveal, they also concealed. That's what Jesus says. Look in verses 11 and 12. His disciples come up to him after he tells this parable. And they ask, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? And he replies, verse 11, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn 
and be forgiven. Does that strike anyone as odd? Parables conceal. But of course you have to remember that we're in the middle of war. As I've said throughout the Gospel of Mark, the picture that has been painted is that the Allied forces have landed on the beaches of Normandy. And in war, you can't make everything plain. You have to speak in code. Most information is classified. And if you want to understand the code, if you want to understand the information, you have to actually go to the source. You have to go to the one who's giving the code, which is what the disciples do in verse 10. And it's what we need to do now. So let me pray for us. And God, I do pray that to us it would be given the secret of the kingdom of God. That your word would come in all its power. That it would find suitable soil and take root in our lives and bear fruit even 30, 60, 100 fold. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Well, have you ever asked yourself the question, is Christianity, does it really work? I mean, is it really working? We give ourselves over to this thing, and we say, we believe, we trust that it's going to transform our lives. And transform the lives of those around us. And transform the world itself. But, but you, you have to ask week in and week out. Like how can a kind of bumbled sermon. And a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. Be so transformative. I mean. And is it really transforming the world? I mean we come and we confess. I believe that he was raised on the third day. And I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. That, that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, that there was a power that exploded, was unleashed on the world, the transformative, saving power of God. And we say, if it's so transformative, then why aren't things more transformed? I mean, how come sex slavery is still there? Why the wars? Why the addictions? Why the broken families? And that's in the church. Why the abuse? Why slavery? Is it really working? How do you handle that question? How did Jesus handle that question? Well, Jesus handled that question by telling stories. He tells a story in verses 3 through 9 of a farmer that goes out and he casts out seed indiscriminately. And it lands in various places. Some of the seed lands on a path and it's eaten. Some of the seed lands in some rocky soil and it sprouts up at first, but it can't lay down roots and so it, it gets taken away. It doesn't last. Other seed lands in places that get kind of choked out by other environmental factors like thorns and thistles. But, but some seed lands on ground and becomes very fruitful. Now when we hear that story, we like to focus on the soil. But I want you to notice that when Jesus explains the story, that's not primarily where his focus is. His focus is on the seed. 
Look, he begins when he explains it to his disciples in verse 14. The sower sows the word. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand how Christianity works and that it works, you have to understand that my word is like a seed. A seed which, though it may be small, and though it may look dead, has life-giving, transformative power. And if it is put in the right environment, and if you give it enough time, it will bear fruit. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. That if the seed of God's word lands in a human soil and takes root, there will be new life. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God has life-giving, transformative power. Like the power of a seed. But if that's the case, why isn't it more effective? I mean, if it has transformative power, why doesn't it transform more? Ira Glass is coming to speak this next year through the um, UCSB Arts and Letters uh, Lectures um, series. Ira Glass is most known for This American Life, the producer of it. He grew up Jewish. He's now 58 and considers himself to be an atheist. But at one point in his life, he was investigating religion seriously. And I once heard an interview of Ira Glass. And in that interview, he said this. Christianity is number one for a reason. That is a great story. And it's a reassuring story. He then went on to talk about how some Christian friends of his who ministered in prisons used to tell the story when they ministered to ex-gang members. They would go into the prisons and they would say, well, you know how in the gang you have to get jumped to get in and you get jumped out? Like if you want to get into the gang, you have to get beat up. And if you, want, and if you ever try to get out of the gang, you're also going to get beat up. You know, you know how that works? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, listen, to get in with God, somebody's got to get beat up. You got to get beat up. And Jesus was beat up for you. And he was beat up in such a way that you can't ever get out with God. And Ira Glass looks at the interviewer and he says, I mean, that is powerful. That is compelling. That is reassuring. But I just don't think it's true. How come the word of the gospel can fall on Ira Glass's life? And it not take root. How come it isn't more effective? In verse 15, Jesus speaks of those who hear the word, but it makes no impact. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 15, it's because there are other players in the world. Namely, Satan, who comes and takes the seed. You know, Satan, that... that figure that we don't talk about a lot, but it's been mentioned like every passage in Mark, that's Satan. Jesus is saying that when the word goes out, it's not, it's not just a, a human heart and, and the preaching of the gospel that's going on here. It's also that there are gophers in the garden, and they have to be fought off. That there are more powers going on, and that there's more going on than just two humans trying to convey, one trying to convey a message to another, 
through rational means. And so we need to pray. And we need not be befuddled. Why isn't the gospel more effective? Well, one reason is Satan. Sarah became a Christian when she was 19. And it changed her life. There was this joy that had never been there before. She was often depressed. She was isolated. She lacked confidence. She couldn't look at people in the eyes. And she didn't feel like she would ever be loved because she didn't feel like she was worthy of love. She didn't feel like she was lovable. Every circumstance in her life growing up, from elementary school through middle school through high school, told her that. And then she heard of God's love, of a God who loves us because he loves us because he loves us in Jesus Christ. Of, of a God who, who loved her, not, not through the judgment of her body type or her personality or her complexion or anything else, but because he saw her and he loved her. And it brought this joy. And she began to have hope. Hope, not just that she could be loved by God, but that she could be loved by someone else. And so, and so she regained hope that, that actually she could have a husband someday. She became a Christian, and so she waited for God to bring a Christian man into her life. She went on some dates, but they didn't go well, and she kept waiting. And then the months rolled into years, and the years rolled into a decade. And then she gave up hope. And she said, if God's not going to give me a husband for my life, then why would I give him my life? And she fell away. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus talks about those in whom the word finds initial success. But the hardships of life and loss mean that the word doesn't take root. And quote, they fall away. Tom was a businessman. He grew up a Christian. And he was in the church most of his life. He was a leader in his youth group, and he was involved in his campus ministry. He had an accountability team, and they prayed all the time throughout college. He would talk to his friends and others about Jesus, and he met a gal through that campus ministry, and he married her. He was also a hard worker and very smart. And he had some creative ideas, and after he got his uh, first couple jobs, he decided to uh, take some risk, and he... He created a startup company, and his idea took off. In fact, he was, he was extremely successful, but the success, it was, it was addictive, even though the work was hard. And so he worked and worked and worked and worked. Saturdays, he worked. And Saturdays turned into to Sundays he was working. But his family started to get older. He started to, to feel like whatever time he had left off, he needed to spend with his family. So he bought a mountain house and he bought a lake house. And uh, three, weeks of the, uh, three weekends of the month, they were at the lake house or they were at the mountain house. And, uh, and he enjoyed that time with his family. They're still going to church about once a month, hearing the gospel. But 
That turned into every other month. It turned into every six months. And the next thing you knew, it just went to church at Christmas and Easter. And Well, Tom, he started to resonate with Steve Jobs, who said, like, why would I spend three hours on a Sunday morning going to church when there's so much more I could get done? And for Tom, Jesus, he just didn't seem that important anymore compared to everything else. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus talks about those who receive the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That there are those for whom either Satan takes the word, or the cross becomes... Well, it feels small in comparison to their circumstances. Or those who the siren call of riches and other pursuits draw them away. But of course, that's not the only possibility. In verse 20, Jesus talks about those who hear the word and accept it, and it bears fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and even 100-fold. Which simply means this. And Jesus is saying, the word will bear fruit. If it falls on soil and it takes root, it will bear fruit. In God's time, in God's way, it will bear fruit. You see, if it does bear fruit, 30 and 60 and 100 fold and some, then it means this, the problem is not with the seed. You can still trust the seed. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, the message that you are proclaiming, the life-giving message, you can trust that in God's time, in God's way, it will work. God's means will produce God's ends, but you have to trust it. In verses 26 and 29, Jesus tells a story of a farmer who goes out and he plants a seed and then he goes in and goes to bed. And he gets up the next day, and then he goes to bed. And he gets up the next day, and he goes to bed. And he gets up the next day, and he goes to bed. And then one day he goes out, and mysteriously he sees that the fruit, the seed that he planted is starting to bear fruit. It's starting to grow. And, and he didn't tend to it. He didn't do anything to it, but it grows. Verse 27, the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. However mysterious it grows. I was visiting my parents uh, last summer. It was the last time I was there. And I was um, swimming in their pool, and I looked out at their, um, their flower beds, right? And I looked in the flower beds, and there were these three gigantic watermelons. Like, massive watermelons in my parents' flower beds. Not their garden. They don't have a garden. Flower beds. How did watermelon get in your flower bed? Well... One morning, I'm sure it was my dad, it could have been my mom, were outside and they were eating watermelon and they spit the seed out. And the next thing you know, however mysteriously, they didn't do anything to it, they didn't look at it, they didn't cultivate it, they didn't do anything, it produced these big watermelons. Why? Because the seed has a life-giving power in itself. And if you trust it, it will do its thing. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the earth 
produces by itself. The seed produces by itself, verse 28, that the seed carries its own life-giving potential. And so you have to ask the question, do I trust the life-giving potential of the seed, of the word? You know, I get up and I preach the gospel most weeks, week in, week out. When you do it once or twice or every once in a while, um, you don't have these questions. But when you do it week in and week out and you like spend all this time a sermon and then you preach it and then it goes in the trash and then like you don't think about it again. I can't remember it. I know you can't remember it. Sometimes I preach the same sermon twice and you don't even notice, which is great. Uh, and you have to start thinking to yourself like, what's going on? Is this really working? Shouldn't we do something else? And as I started to think about it, I started to think, you know, preaching the gospel is kind of like smoking a pork butt. Some of you know that I smoke pork butt. See, Jesus, he is using analogies that work for people in his time. And I don't know what your analogy is, but mine is a pork butt. Because when you smoke a pork butt, you prep the pork butt and you put it in the smoker, and then it sits there for like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours. And you're just sitting there letting it smoke. And I got to tell you, every time just about that I smoke a pork butt, you know, right around hour four, I start getting a little anxious. Temperature's not, around hour six, I'm starting to get anxious. I don't know what's going on. So then around hour like eight or nine, I'm starting to make other plans for dinner. Because I'm like, is it going to be ready? Is it going to be good? But here's the thing about a pork butt. If you mess with it, that's how you have the potential to ruin it. Because if you were looking, it ain't a cooking. And... <laughs> If you turn up, if you turn it up, you burn it up. That's just, that was free. That was free <laughs> advice. Uh, so you have to try, and, and every, it comes out, but I get worried, I get anxious, I start trying to do things, I start trying to finagle it, and then I start making plans for pizza. Right? Because it's hard to trust that you just got to let the smoker do its thing. You know, the gospel and preaching is the same way. You just have to let the gospel do its thing. You have to put it out there, and you have to wait, and you have to let it do its thing. Because it will do its thing. And so here's the question. Do you trust the power of the word in your life? Do you trust that actually it can transform you when you take it in? Or are you looking for all other kinds of means and mechanisms and thinking about ditching this because, well, it's about hour eight and you're not seeing enough transformation yet? Or are you looking for other means and mechanisms to change the world because it's 2,000 years on and it just doesn't seem to be working fast enough? See, do you trust that Christianity works? Some of us fail to appreciate what God is doing because we fail to appreciate how God is doing it. Some of us fail to appreciate God's power. We often fail to appreciate God's power because we fail to appreciate that God's power works paradoxically. That it's... That it works like a mustard seed. That's what Jesus says in verse 31. A mustard seed. He points out that it's the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. 
And of course, there are some people who would say that we can't trust the Bible because clearly a mustard seed is not the smallest seed of all the earth. Um, I feel like I have to say that because some people have been influenced even here by this. Uh, That is almost intellectually not credible enough for me to countenance, but I will because I know some people have actually experienced this. Look, if somebody who is, uh, studies the stars and their movements at UCSB says to their kid in the morning, did you see the sunrise? Do you say we can't trust anything that they say about space and how it works? No, because they're speaking phenomenologically in a universe of discourse. And Jesus is speaking phenomenologically to those there in a universe of discourse. And he's saying, look, we all know it's a really small seed. That's the point. That's how we talk. But they didn't, you know, they didn't, their, their English was not as um, refined as ours. So they didn't use the word like all the time. So they, Jesus wasn't able to say it's like the smallest seed in the earth, right? Because their English wasn't as good as ours. And so he just says it's the smallest seed in the earth. But you get the point. This isn't a science textbook. He's trying to say that the mustard seed, though very, very small and seemingly insignificant, has a great power. See, we ask the question when we look around, why all the economic injustice? Why the war and abuse? Why the loan sharks? And why is the church so small? Why is Christianity so marginalized? Why is it so insignificant? He says, well, because it's like a mustard seed. It's small. Deceptively small. Verse 31. It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out larger plants so that the birds of the air can take nests in its shade. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom works like a compounding investment. Ages and ages ago, I, yes, I, this is confession time. Uh, We had our corporate confession. This is my personal confession. I used to work at Starbucks and that was the confession. When I was working at Starbucks, I remember overhearing this this finance guy and he was talking um, to a 30-year-old and he was saying, look, You have to get, if you would have put just like $50 away every month when you were 18, this is what the numbers would look like now. You would be so much better off if you had started saving earlier because of compound interest. And he looked at me, he's like, how old are you? And I'm like, "Uh, I'm I'm, I'm 18. And he goes, okay, so let's, let's take him for example. If he put this much in every month, just this little amount, seeming little amount, this is what he would be worth at your age. And I did so, and that's why I'm a multimillionaire. <laughs> Not really. Not really. Not really, because the reality is, is that we underestimate, we fail to appreciate something so small and so consistent, so ordinary, and what it can do. But Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed that's planted and it's a compounding investment that grows and grows and grows and grows. You see, in Jesus' day, the people that he's talking to, they had expectations about the kingdom. 
I mean, if you were to come on the scene and you were to say, I'm starting a kingdom, which is what Jesus is saying, the good news of the kingdom of God is here, how would you expect it to come about? Well, probably not that much different than how they expect it to come about. It either comes about through a sword, through military might, or it comes about through political maneuvering. And Jesus says, but my kingdom is going to come through preaching, through a seed. And that was hard for them to expect because they thought when it all comes in, what's going to happen is God is going to establish his kingdom. It's going to come in a flash. It's going to be a bang. It's going to be big. And everybody's going to see it. And then there's going to be a judgment. Salvation and judgment are going to happen. And everyone was expecting that. And Jesus says, it's not like that. And the reality is, is that what they expected then, we still expect now. It looks a little differently, but I think that we expect it too. It's why we're so into celebrity preachers. It's why we have, we have to form gospel coalitions. And it's why every Christian thing that starts up, we have to call a movement. Now listen, I think great preaching on the internet is great. And I'm all for it. I think that working together for the sake of the gospel is great. And I'm all for it. And I think that if the gospel spreads from one sphere to the next, like a movement, that is great, and I am all for it. So there's nothing wrong with celebrity preachers in themselves. There's nothing wrong with the gospel coalition in itself. And there's nothing wrong with calling something or wanting for uh, to be a movement in itself. But what I wonder is, is there not something in us that like thinks that the kingdom has to be kind of big? and flashy, and known, and renowned. I know there is in my life. And isn't there a sense where we fail to appreciate the ordinary and small means that God uses week in and week out? One time someone asked Eric Alexander, who for some consider him to be the best English-speaking preacher in the world, and they asked him, Eric, who is your favorite preacher? You know what he answered? My parish minister. And that's the right answer. Because he got. He got that it's not about the person, it's not about the flash, it's, not, it's about the ordinary preaching of the seed. Going out. But because of that, we often miss the kingdom. See, I told you that parables at the beginning have a point and a punch. And therein lies the punch. That we often miss the kingdom because we're looking for the kingdom to look like something else. That we often miss God's work because we want God's work to look like something else. That we often miss God's power because we fail to recognize that it comes in weakness, that it comes in, he had no form, her beauty, that one should admire him. It's not attractive. And we miss it because it looks often like death. But the punch is there in verse 29. When the grain is ripe at once, he puts the sickle. He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It's a quote from Joel 3.13. And in Joel 3... The context is talking about the great and awesome day of the Lord. A day when God would come and establish his kingdom on earth. 
And that day would be a day of salvation and a day of judgment. And everyone expected that what God is going to do, everyone expected that what he's going to do is he's going to judge the Gentiles and he's going to judge the unrighteous Israelites and he's going to save the righteous Israelites and he's going to do so in power, in strength, in might. And Jesus says, look, the judgment is still coming. And the kingdom is still coming. Don't miss it. Because those who are not a part of it, the sickle will come. The judgment will come. And don't miss it because it's deceptively small. And because it doesn't meet your expectations or look like what you think. Because my kingdom will have its harvest and so here's the question, will you be ready? Am I going to be ready? Well, how do you get ready? You know, when Jesus earlier, he says that the parable of the sower is the most important of all the parables, and if you don't understand it, you're not going to understand any of them. And there he says that the way in which those who actually bear fruit is, is it's about seed taking root in dirt. And what is the seed? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the seed of Abraham is the one in whom all the nations will be blessed. And that seed was always meant to be planted in the dirt and to spring up after a day and a night and a day and a night, three days later. And the seed is the word. But what is the word? The word who was with God from the beginning? And was God the word through whom all things were made? The word which took on flesh and dwelt among us. The word which expired its last and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word went into the dirt and rose three days later. And what is the dirt? What is the dirt? Did you know that your carbon that you're made from the periodic table. And this isn't just me spilling out some scientific stuff. This is Genesis 3. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. You see, you, me, we're dirt. We're your dirt. And who is it who has revealed the secrets of the kingdom? What's well, not rocket science? It's right there in the narrative. Verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Who is it? It's those who are humble enough to come and say, we don't understand what you're talking about, but we trust in you. We don't trust our own wisdom. We don't trust our own righteousness. We don't trust that we have it all together, but we're coming to you. See, see the ones who receive the seed are the ones who recognize that they are but dirt. And they have nothing to offer. They are the they're the ones who recognize that the seed's place, rightful place, is in the dirt. And it is not squished out by all the other stuff. But the only thing we bring to God is the dirt of our sin and our self 
And we ask for his word to be planted within us. And that's what brings life. You see, religion says the good are in and the bad are out. Modern secularism, the, the, the news of modern secularism is that the open-minded in, are in and the exclusive are out. Academia says that the intelligent are in and the dumb are out. The business world says the savvy and the, intuit, and the in, ingenuitive are in and the naive and the passive are out. The fashion world says that the chic and the good-looking are in and the calmly are out. But Christianity says the humble are in. The dirt's in. And the proud are out. So I want to tell you a story. She got pregnant in April, right around her 30th birthday. But she was so loaded every night that the next morning's first urine was too diluted for a pregnancy test to prove positive. She was often sick in the morning. On weekdays, she put coffee on, went for a run, took a shower, had coffee, maybe some speed, and a thousand cigarettes, and then tried to write. And on the weekend, she went to the flea market. If she happened to be there between 11 and 1 on Sundays, Anne Lamont said she could hear gospel music coming from a church right across the street. The church looked homely and impoverished, she said. A ramshackle building with a cross on top, sitting on a small parcel of land with a few skinny pine trees. But the music was wafing out. It was so pretty that she would stop and listen. She writes, I went back to church. I was so, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand. This time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared child. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction and I raced home. I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my house and I stood there a minute then I hung my head and said, okay, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this is my beautiful moment of conversion. And then she quotes George Herbert, and here in dust and dirt, oh here, the lilies of his love appear. May you receive the word today, and may it bear much fruit. Amen.